Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, fellow time travelers, and as always, I hope you're very well. To support this podcast, sign up to my Patreon site, and each week from my home here in Stirling, you'll receive a new exclusive video featuring a mix of history and comment and current affairs. On my site, there's a whole archive of films to watch by now. Uh, There's one on the fallen, the fallen of the First World War. There's another on the history of pandemics. Uh, There's one on on a new human species, a new new recent discovery of of yet another variation on what it is to be human and alive. The Spartans, who inspired the film 300. There's another about the Battle of Britain. There's, There's one about the Vikings. Anyway, I'm sure you get the picture. To get your hands on all these films, go to patreon.com and search for Neil Oliver. I look forward to seeing you there. OK, that's all the news worth printing about my Patreon site. Here comes this week's podcast. Cue the music. She is fundamental to the beginning of the better comprehension of the story of planet Earth. In this episode, we're searching the storm-swept Dorset coast for glimmers of a long-lost past, following in the footsteps of the mother of paleontology, a fossil hunter extraordinaire, ichthyosaurs, ammonites, belemnites, plesiosaurs, often working in foul weather and in dangerous, precarious locations. Her discoveries were appropriated, in the early days at least, without credit by the scientists of the day. But through perseverance and ability, sheer genius, she excelled, discovering the world that rests beneath all our feet. I'm stepping out across Britain, to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi, Neil. In the last episode, we were on the edge of the wild Yorkshire moors as the Bronte sisters' genius changed the world of literature. Where are we this week? Well, Paul, we're leaving behind the dazzling imaginations of the Brontes to meet another woman of incredible skill and intelligence. She too battled the conventions of her day to make a name for herself. We're breaking rocks with Mary Anning on the magical Jurassic coast in the beautiful seaside town of Lyme Regis. 
Lyme Regis is well, it's famous for a variety of things, really, but perhaps for most holidaymakers and day trippers, it's famous for fossils. And it's famous for fossils because it sits on a part of the coast of England that is known to geologists as the Jurassic Coast. There's a strip of coastline many miles long that sits on materials and sediments laid down 190 million years ago during the period known to geologists as the Jurassic. It was laid down at a time when that part of what becomes England was elsewhere on the globe and it was underwater. It was under a shallow sea and what was laid down was sediments full of sea creatures, ammonites and belemnites, you know, those little curly cone-like fossils. Lyme Regis is famous for it. Also, it's famous for the cob, C-O-double-B, which is the harbour wall, a beautiful, evocative, curving harbour wall. Always reminds me of, remember when you were at school, when you were little, and you thought your neighbour was copying your jotter. You'd sort of curl your arm round it, curl your arm round your jotter to keep their eyes off. It's curved like that, and it's built of um, rough boulders mortared together. It's a beautiful thing. The cob has been there since the 14th century, there's records of it going back to 1313. That's the year before Edward II was defeated at Bannockburn by Robert the Bruce. So it's been there a long time. And the cob, it's, it's rightly famous in its own right, just as an architectural structure. But it was made famous more recently for a lot of people by the film adaptation in 1981 of The French Lieutenant's Woman which had uh, the unforgettable image of the woman in the long cloak with her hood up, looking up to sea. That's on the end of the cob at Lyme Regis. And in Jane Austen's Persuasion, you know, we're just after talking about the Bronte sisters, uh, Jane Austen is another of the women of that period, you know, so important to English literature. In Jane Austen's Persuasion, there's a character, Louisa Musgrove, and she jumps off the steps leading up to the cob and, and suffers a concussion. So all in all, Lyme Regis and the Cobb, they're famous. They're, they're so evocative of the English seaside and, and a time, I suppose, a time in, in English history. But back to the fossils, it's really the fossils and the Jurassic Coast that Lyme Regis is so famous for. And most famous of all in that context is Lyme Regis is home to the mother of paleontology. Paleontology being the study of that ancient past via fossilised remains of ancient living creatures. And the so-called mother of paleontology is fossil hunter extraordinaire Mary Anning, who is, it's fair to say she's a giant in the field of paleontology. The advances that she made, the steps that she took into a better understanding of the deep history of planet Earth, no one has done more. And it's made all the more remarkable for knowing a little bit about who Mary Anning was and the circumstances that she came from. She was born in 1799, really into, well, we would certainly consider it poverty. They lived in a, a little house so close to the sea that it often flooded in a storm. Mary was one of ten children born to Richard, Richard Anning and his wife, Mary. And so Mary Anning, little Mary, was one of ten children, but only... She and her elder brother Joseph survived into adulthood. L last time when we were talking about the Bronte sisters and how they grew up in the parsonage at Horth, 
surrounded by a cemetery. And we were talking about how, you know, the gravestones in places like that are just full of children's names. Child mortality was so high. You know, there was no, no contraception to speak of other than abstinence. And so women could be pregnant one after another for the entirety of their the fertile years of their lives. And, and for lots of reasons, so many of the children just didn't make it, didn't even make it to their first birthday. A small percentage made it to the age of five, and then a smaller percentage again made it into adulthood. It was a, you know, tragic, and, and Mary Anning's family was another exemplar of that tragic state of affairs. With our modern mindset and circumstances, it's hard to imagine what that must have been like, isn't it? Uh, yeah, de- I mean, it, you know, we always say you can't put yourself back into the mind of a Neolithic farmer or, a, or, or people from the distant past because their circumstances are so different and the world in which they lived was so different and their basis and their means of understanding the world around them were so different. And that's in the case of the distant past, but, you know, the 18th century is not so distant. And Mary lived into the 19th century, of course. So it's not that distant, and yet to try and empathise with those people who were seeing so many people, their children die in front of their eyes, and yet they still had to get on with life. For most of us who are parents, I mean, the very thought, the very thought of, of losing one child is unthinkable. And yet for people not so far out of reach in terms of time, it was a commonplace. And clearly to put that behind us and to have conquered that kind of child mortality, at least here in the West, is of course the most wonderful achievement. But nonetheless, at the same time, it has made us very, very vulnerable to to death. We dread it and are terrified of it in a way that almost infantilises us. And the COVID pandemic, I think, has thrown that into sharp relief. That's why the past is so instructive. You know, these people who lived in a world not so far out of reach from us, really, and they had to cope with death. They had to go on with their lives, burying their children as they went. So yes, so Mary, little Mary Anning, she was one of ten, but only she and one of her elder brothers survived into adulthood. And Richard, the father, he was a, a carpenter, a cabinet maker. But to supplement his income, which was meagre, he collected fossils on the beach. Lyme Regis would regularly, through the winter months in particular, be battered by storms, and the, the soft sediments and limestone of the coastline there erodes quickly. And so it would often be the case that you'd go out after a storm and the, the, you know, the ammonites and other fossils would be there on the beach like dropped coins. And he knew what they were, and he was you know, entrepreneurial enough to be about the business of getting the kids involved, and they would clean them up and they would sell them to make a few more pennies to add to the family purse. And Mary and Joseph got involved with them. Little Mary and Joseph were involved in that. And it was just as well that he taught them as much as he did in the time that he had, because he died in 1810, when Mary Anning was just 11. And so the family were left behind with debts. So their their circumstances were made even more difficult than they had been before. And they got a little bit of poor relief from the parish. But Mary and Joseph, young though they were, set about the business of collecting fossils in their own right. And it became important. The cliffs that are between Lyme Regis and then there's the village of Charmouth to the east. It's a slice. If you imagine 
the mainland is made up of various different chunks of different periods of geological time, all just pressed together. Scotland didn't really join up with the rest of it until about 60 million years ago. And the various chunks that make up England and Wales were kind of crushed together by geology and time. And so there is this slice there that has within it a lump of geology from 190 million years ago. I suppose you could say that Mary and Joseph, her brother, they were lucky in that respect that they happened to have this resource on their doorstep, literally. But fortune took a different turn sometime between 1811 and 1812. So not long after their father had died, the pair of them uncovered on the beach, within a cliff face, the remains of what were first identified as the world's first ever complete fossil of an ichthyosaurus. Bits and pieces, fragments of ichthyosaurus had been found before, but theirs was the first one that was there in its entirety. And it's a bizarre looking creature. It's like a cross between a fish and a dolphin. You know, you probably wouldn't want to encounter one. They could be as much as 50 feet long. Wow. A major marine creature. What they must have thought when they found that. Uh huh. I mean, well, they, they at least were experienced in the fact that their father had explained to them that these were ancient creatures, the remains of. And it, somehow or other, it was brought to the attention of the Royal Society, which is a great and august scientific body clever men who gathered together to discuss things of note. And so by 1814, Sir Everard Hume, who was a British surgeon actually and a member of the Royal Society, he became aware of the Annings Ichthyosaur and he published a paper about it that was read out to the Royal Society in 1814. Mary and Joseph weren't mentioned. I mean, after all, they were poor and they had been paid. I don't know how much, but they got paid a few coins for their trouble, which was probably of more practical use to them anyway than a, a mention in an academic paper, but nonetheless, they got no mention of it. At some point after that discovery, Joseph stopped looking for fossils. He went on to do other things, earned his living another way. But Mary continued, and it was tough. She would be out in the winter, during it in the aftermath of storms, and, you know, out in the cold, soaked to the skin often in dangerous situations, you know, because she'd be at the foot of cliffs. You, you know, she knew that's where the fossils were. And quite often there'd be, like, collapses because the, the, the material was, by definition, unstable. So it'd quite often collapse. And, and on one occasion, her pet dog was beside her and it was buried and killed. Nonetheless, she was never put off and she carried on. And the really amazing thing, given her the fact that she had had no education to speak of, she began her own research... She got her hands on scientific journals and started... I mean, can you imagine? I mean, scientific journals of the people, I mean, they're inscrutable. You know, the language of them and the level of scientific background that they expect. And somehow or other, Mary Anning began working her way through these, deciphering them. You can imagine her sort of working through them almost like they were in a foreign language. But she learned and... She began thinking about it and understanding what was going on. She found more ichthyosaurus and also other, other species never before known. In 1824, she had the discovery of a lifetime when she found the world's first plesiosaurus. Now, that's the gigantic dinosaur creature that's often invoked to explain the Loch Ness Monster. It has been suggested by many that if the Loch Ness Monster exists, it's a survivor 
from the Jurassic period, a plesiosaurus, a gigantic marine creature. Well, she found the world's first. In 1828, she discovered the very first pterodactyl. Well, the first to be found anywhere outside Germany. Pterodactyls are the kind of like flying, flying dinosaurs that everybody knows from Jurassic Park. You know, those terrifying dinosaur vulture creatures. And so she became incredibly well-known. People started coming to Lyme Regis, not just to take the sea air and not just to look for fossils themselves, but to find Mary. People knew about Mary, the fossilist, as they called her. She sells seashells on the seashore. The tongue twister was written about Mary Anning. Was it really? Yeah, she sells seashells on the seashore. That's Mary Anning. She's the she. And then there was a woman named Lady Harriet Sylvester who came to Lyme Regis and encountered Mary, and she wrote in 1824, and I quote, The extraordinary thing in this young woman, Mary Anning, is that she has made herself so thoroughly acquainted with the science that the moment she finds any bones, she knows to what tribe they belong. She fixes the bones on a frame with cement and then makes drawings and has them engraved. It is certainly a wonderful instance of divine favour that this poor, ignorant girl should be so blessed, for by reading and application she has arrived to that degree of knowledge as to be in the habit of writing and talking with professors and other clever men on the subject, and they all acknowledge that she understands more of the science than anyone else in this kingdom. Now, it's a bit patronising, you know, this poor, ignorant girl, but nonetheless, difficult to interpret it. It's written in the 1820s, so... Maybe she didn't mean to be as patronising as it seems to us when we read those words, but it makes plain that within her own lifetime, it was understood that she was making strides in paleontology, which was, I mean, it was a, that, that was a science that was being invented as they went along. I mean, there weren't paleontologists before Mary Anning, not really. You know, she was in at the building foundation level of that. And it's such a reminder that, you know, we, our lives are lived on the thinnest veneer at the top of time. You know, we are the bubbles and the foam on top of the deep ocean of time. And Mary was working at a time when most people, if they thought about it at all, they believed the literal truth of Genesis in the Old Testament of the Bible. They believed that the world was 6,000 years old that God had created everything in six days and rested on the Sunday and she was having to confront, you know, penetrating that, realising that she was finding evidence of a time frame that meant that 6,000 years was barely, barely allowing for the very beginning of the story. And for a woman like her, a woman, first of all, women weren't given the opportunity to be educated in in the way men were, even if they were from well-to-do circumstances, let alone a poor woman. She was self-taught. She was a genius. She happened to be in circumstances where she was exposed to the reality of fossils, and yet she didn't just take it for granted like so many people did. She studied it, and she had an inquiring mind, and she penetrated into it, and she began to write and to contribute to the fledgling understanding that was to become the science of paleontology. She's nothing less than remarkable. She died of breast cancer in 1847. She had just at that point, just recently been made an honorary member of the Geological Society. 
And when I say an honorary member, it was the case that the women wouldn't be officially accepted into that society until 1904. Another half a century and more would go by before a woman could really be accepted into the Royal Geographical Society. But, you know, so, so much, it's just, it's flim-flam, really, these honours and awards. Her real monument is what she discovered. And if you go to the British Museum or the Natural History Museum, her fossil discoveries are still there. Some of those that are up on display in cabinets or up on the wall are hers. Ichthyosaurus, Plesiosaurus, they're there. And she is fundamental to the beginning of the better comprehension of the story of planet Earth. It began while she was alive and contributing. And there is no more important student of the science of paleontology than Mary Anning. She's just an inspiration and an example to all male and female, young and old. And, you know, what she set out to do, what she was able to do, the contribution she was able to make is second to nobody's. The spectre of poverty rose darkly and menacingly across Britain. Rebellion was starting to spread. Captain Swing scared the landowners and bosses into brutal reprisals. Dorset workers dreaming of a better future formed a union of sorts called a friendly society. For daring to stand up straight and hoping for liberty, they were crushed by the authorities, transported to the penal colony of Australia. In their defence, the country rose up Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finances by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.